G'day humans, welcome to the safe space for dangerous ideas, uh, uncomfortable conversations with me, Josh Seps, your humble warrior princess. Uh, look, uh, the fact still remains that we're about to roll out more content. I keep saying this, I've been saying it for a few months now. Things move slowly when you're as busy as uh, as I. Uh, and if you want to be on the uh, at the beginning of this bandwagon, uncomfyconvos at gmail.com is my producer's email, uncomfyconvos, U-N-C-O-M-F-Y. C-O-N-V-O-S. Just shoot an email right now, pull your phone out of your pocket and say, uh, subscribe, question mark, and you'll be at, at the front of the line. You'll get benefits that other people don't when we start rolling out extra uh, content. And look, this is one of those episodes that I just so wished I was in the same room as Louise with four hours instead of one hour. Uh, I, I apologize for the audio, con- the, the quality of the audio is not quite as good as my usual standards because the uh, the portable studio that I normally use was not with me. So we were just sort of chatting on a laptop. Uh, it's a shame because Louise is such an interesting person with so many interesting ideas. So excuse my tinny audio and hers and the fact that I was kind of whispering because my children were asleep in Australia and she was kind of whispering because she has a 17-month-old who was presumably napping in the UK. Louise is a writer and campaigner. Uh, she's a columnist at the New Statesman. She's a features writer for the Daily Mail. She is the co-founder of a, a non-partisan feminist think tank and she's become suddenly one of the most important young feminist voices in the UK. Uh, we do not go into trans and gender issues here. This is focused on the gender of the two binary sexes and whether or not men differ from women and whether women have been ill-served in some ways by the shift in gender dynamics and the sexual revolution that's taken place over the past couple of generations. Her debut book is called The Case Against the Sexual Revolution, A New Guide to Sex in the 21st Century. I hope you enjoy as much as I did, despite all of the technical flaws, this conversation with Louise Perry. We have a 17-month-old son, yes. Wow. Who just before I came on the line had done the most shocking explosive nappy, <laughs> and he's le- and we and we realised we, he was he was turning there going, oh wow, oh wow, and we're like, oh that's so cute. What's he saying? And then we realised that oh wow has come to mean yeah. you need to change yeah. my clothes immediately. Oh wow means I've done something so impressive that even I, yes. am, I that yeah. I can't believe what I'm capable of. When are you get a load of this? <laughs> Yeah, I remember those days. That must be interesting <laughs> doing a, a book tour at the same time as having a seventeen-month-old. Uh, yeah, I wouldn't. Yeah, it, it wasn't a great idea to be honest. <laughs> Here we are. <laughs> I mean, although book tours now don't actually generally require you to leave your your study. No, that's true. I, I suppose there's there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of just this, isn't there? Sitting in front of yeah, the and talking to people in faraway locations. Uh, yeah, the only exception is um, <clears throat> literary festivals. Which yes. you actually have to go to, but yeah, the vast majority of the book tour has just been talking down a microphone like this. Yeah, good. Um, why? Uh, what was wrong with the sexual revolution, Louise? <laughs> well, um, so my what I'm arguing against in this book is what I think is a simplistic and naive narrative of the sexual revolution that you'll often hear in a in progressive spaces which is that it was uh it was done for and by women and it was uh wholly to our benefit and um i don't think that's true i don't think it was really done sort of by anyone i don't think there's any conspiracy i don't think anyone even really foresaw what was going to happen to be honest when you had things like the pill entering the scene um i think it was just a a, a large-scale historical event that was primarily driven by technology, um, particularly the pill, but also all sorts of other ways in which our lives had changed materially in the last 60 years. Um, and there is an ideology that's come along with that, and it's an ideology that sort of justifies the changes that we've seen and sets everything against a kind of progress narrative where everything's always getting better and things are just going to keep getting better as long as we as long as we stick at it. I don't believe in progress. Um <laughs> I'm a I'm a progress apostate. 
um, in the sense that I used to be a very sort of um, straight down the line Guardian reader. That makes sense in an Australian context. Yes, yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. My uh, my family are actually Australian. My grandmother gets the Guardian weekly, but I don't know if that's I don't know if that's standard practice. The Guardian here is not a they don't print it. Uh, it's just an online publication, but not okay, okay. okay. But you know what I mean culturally and politically yeah. when I say yeah. I, I was a yeah. Guardian reader. Yeah, I mean broad, broadly. I mean we have a lot of American listeners as well, so that would mm. be uh, broadly on the left an NPR listener. an NPR listener. Yeah, yeah, um, and um, I'm. Um, I'm not really anymore. Um, I should not say that I still read the Guardian, but just in the sense that I'm not. Um, I don't really subscribe to that notion of progress, even if I do believe with, uh, even if I do agree with progressives on some things. And, You're talking um, about cultural progress here, or technological and uh, sort of humanitarian. Well, cultural. Progress? I mean, I suppose. I mean, I suppose te- technology can be understood in that way, in the sense that it always builds on old technologies. So there is a sort of directionality to technological progress, which um, sort of makes sense. But I don't think that we should understand social progress in that sense. I don't, like when it comes to women's history, for instance, there's this, I'm putting it crudely, but there's this quite dominant historical narrative of women's history that basically women were, women were oppressed by men um, up until the 20th century and thanks to the work of feminist campaigners like, um, suffragists and so on, we sort of wriggled out from under that oppressive yoke and, uh, and things are just going to continue in that vein and, and keep getting better and better. I don't think that's a very persuasive narrative. Um, I think that the primary way in which we should be understanding women's history is is actually far far more to do with material conditions things like um i would argue for instance that actually the washing machine and the microwave and the central heating system and so on explain much much more the ways in which women's lives changed in the 20th century than anything political um, and the pill is obviously a very, very strong example of this, which clearly has given women more um, freedom in the sense that we can c- control our reproductive lives much more easily than we used to, um, but has come with all sorts of sometimes very painful trade-offs. So The Case Against the Sexual Revolution is, is, is a book about those trade-offs, basically. What, what are we meaning by the sexual revolution, just so that people don't get confused? So I'm I'm I, I don't really write in this book about changes to our working lives, which obviously is often comes under that banner. What I'm thinking about really is changes to um, sexual culture and sexual behaviour, and I'm really dating it from the advent of the pill um, in the 1960s, which was originally and, and 1950s, which was originally available to only to married women, and then became available to unmarried women, and I think that the pill was extraordinarily transformational in the sense that it allowed women to suspend their fertility in a way that they'd never been able to do in, you know, 99% plus of human history. This was just simply not available. And, 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 and what existed before in terms of laws and norms and, and institutions like marriage and so on, the, all these things existed to try and deal with the fact that we didn't, there was no pill, you know, <laughs> the yeah. fertility was a, um, a kind of hard biological limit that had to be negotiated. And but since was... we've found technological ways of, of suspending and managing fertility, we've seen amazing social transformations, which I don't think actually we've really wrapped our head around. They're, they're that recent, you know. Doesn't that, cult, doesn't that technological transformation go hand in hand with the cultural transformation that took place during the sexual revolution and the second wave feminists and the Jermaine Greers and Camille Paglia's uh, making a, a convincing case on traditional small L liberal grounds that this half of humanity needs to have every, all the same opportunities for human flourishing, whether that's professional or sexual, uh, as the other half does? 
Yeah, so it all yeah, so the the material change happens at the same time as the ideological change. And I think they really go hand in hand because it's worth remembering that some of this ideological change was happening even before the pill came on the scene. And there have always been periods in history where you see this sort of cycling between periods of more um, permissiveness followed by periods of more um, restriction. So, for instance, um, in this in Britain, Georgians were much more kind of sexually open than their Victorian grandchildren and, and so on. So you, you, you do see a little bit of... Um, reaction and counter-reaction in terms of sexual culture. And already in the 1950s and 60s, you had um, you had Playboy, you had pin-ups, you had um, uh, you know, Marilyn Monroe, subject of this, this new film that's just come out, um, who she lived almost all of her life actually in, in, a, in, a, in a world without the pill um, and without um, decriminalized abortion so so the sexual revolution was was already sort of starting in the sense that there was some um eccentric people who were already kind of experimenting with new new ways of living but the reason i think that it stuck in this case and became so much more mainstream than, than i think at any point in human history before is is because we had the technological means to um to manipulate fertility that our ancestors never had. Right. Right. What were the downsides of that? Um, so I think that what we've seen is basically a move towards a sexual culture that favours um, male interests more than female in the sense that um, there, are, there are some really important ways in which men and women are different. Um, I, some of them are obvious and physical. I say obvious, I mean, they're actually a source of a great deal of political controversy <laughs> just within the last decade. But I think ought to be obvious, and I think I think vast majority of listeners are going to are going to agree with me that that it's it's women who get pregnant, it's men who do the impregnating, and women are also significantly smaller and less physically strong than men, which has all sorts of um, important social consequences in the sense that women are just much more much more vulnerable um, in any kind of heterosexual encounter. Um, more vulnerable to violence and also more vulnerable in the sense that um, women literally bear the consequences of a of an unwanted pregnancy um, and have never have never been able to rip and run in the in the way that men have right um, so that so there's that you know even in a world with the pill and decriminalized abortion and so on you still have unwanted pregnancies you still have women um, dealing with sometimes very painful consequences of a any kind of sexual relationship that, that goes awry. And um, I mean, one of the really perverse consequences of the pill, which I think no one would have expected, is that you have this tech that comes along that um, uh, allows women to control their fertility. And what happens? You have a, a huge spike in the rates of single motherhood, which I think just goes to show how com complicated human beings are. <laughs> you know, you can't. Right, but there doesn't have to be a causal relationship there, does there? Can't that be concurrent? I think there is a causal relationship because I think I think the sequence of what happened is this. I think that you have um, you have the pill into the scene, and the early pill in particular is not that reliable. You're talking like 90 percent reliability, mm. um, which is still roughly the range for typical use now. And the pill is still the most popular prescribed method of birth control, even though you also have things like. Uh, the coil and the, and the arm implant and so on, the so-called long, long-acting reversible, long-acting reversible contraceptives, larks, um, that have appeared more recently and which are more reliable. But the early pill is not actually that reliable. Um, but it, it, it's just reliable enough to really, um, really quickly dismantle the institutions that used to exist to 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 basically regulate horny young people, right? Like <laughs> sure, sure. the 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 criticism of marriage that you you often get from um, many second wave feminists and also since is that it oppresses women. Um, to which I say, uh, yes, it does, but I think it also oppresses men, <laughs> or maybe more accurately, um, represses both men and women in the sense that that, that what the marriage institution does um, in the period when it's it's 
it's it's really strong is it says you can't have sex outside of marriage you know any children that are born from sex outside of marriage are are, are not considered legitimate in legal sense um you'll face social consequences for it you have to sign up to this institution where you stand up in front of everyone and you promise to be faithful to this other person for the rest of your life and you have social and legal obligations to this other person um that you have to keep um the whole point of the institution is that it does con- control people it, it, it limits what you can do it limits your freedom but it also establishes a basis on which you can build a family on on a secure footing you know particularly thinking mm. from a woman's perspective what a, what the marriage contract does really is it says this man has to support me and has to support my children um but when the pill comes along, I mean, the, the phrase I use in the book, which is not actually my phrase, I've, I heard it somewhere, but I can't, I can't remember where, um, is um, when, when, when motherhood became a biological choice for women, fatherhood became a social choice for men in the sense that it became socially okay. acceptable for men to say, well, look, this isn't my problem. You know, you weren't, I, you weren't it, taking it, a pill. You look, it may I don't it's doubt that it's you. part of uh, that. It's part of that uh, that equation, but I mean, a, a Christian conservative would say that the breakdown of the family has, you know, causes all over the place. Part of which might be the pill, but that the the rise in single parenthood and single motherhood has all kinds of complicated cultural reasons uh, that that stretch beyond the pill. I mean, I think it's interesting what you say about marriage being restraining on both parties because I hadn't thought about it that way. But of course, all cultural institutions and political institutions are there to restrain our uh, wildest tempers, aren't they? I mean, we have political institutions in order to constrain our temptation for mob violence and retribution uh, and tyranny. We have the church, we have marriage, we have education set up in the way that it does to constrain the way that people uh, are able to misinform their own offspring aren't these the the things that kind of that kind of stitch together the fabric of modern civilization ways in which we voluntarily enter into restraining agreements with each other and ourselves i would say yeah yeah that i mean the an idea that has come out of um liberalism you know some people would say that it's not really true to original liberal ideals but um, is the idea that freedom is is almost the only virtue, or is the virtue that has to be placed above absolutely every single every single other virtue? And I think that's wrong. I think that I, it's not that freedom doesn't have value; it absolutely does. But in in thinking about things like all the institutions that you mentioned and 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 family relationships and really any kind of relationship or or property ownership or anything that sort of fixes you down and um um puts obligations on you all of these things restrict your freedom and actually if you if you want to be utterly free you can't really have any of that you can't you really can't have a family I mean, mm. nothing more. Mm. <laughs> we started the show by talking about um, um, kids, toddlerhood. Yeah, <laughs> right. Like, no, I mean, I have a friend who, uh, um, yeah. who had a baby not long after I did, and and she um, and she said something very memorable, which is that there's nothing that will restrict your freedom more than having a baby, except possibly going to prison. <laughs> And uh, those long nights can feel like prisons. I yeah. <laughs> <laughs> when you're on your 14th night of sleepless uh, yeah. wailing and nappy changing. It's true, but of course there is there is that line uh, for creatives that there is freedom in constraint. That, that yeah. Actually, if you're, if you're a poet and someone tells you to just write a poem, yeah, that's quite difficult. But if someone tells yeah. you to write a poem about the sensation that you get when you're looking at you know, your grandmother's face, then that's actually an easier task. In the constraint is <clears throat> is a certain amount of creative freedom. And maybe maybe that's a broader lesson for the rest of our lives as well. But I just want to clarify something that you you said because I let it drop and I'm I'm not quite sure what it means. You said that the the pill and the sexual revolution led to women 
are essentially behaving more in the interests of men. Mm. But surely prior to that, they were even more tools of men, weren't they? I think so. It comes down to the ways in which male and female sexuality differs. Um, and this is, I know, a, a potentially controversial point, but I, I have a whole chapter where I lay out the evidence on this because I think that the evidence is really, really strong. And I think it's actually not um, in our interest as feminists to ignore it. I think that there are certain ways in which men and women psychologically differ um, on average. So there are loads of outliers. It really needs to be understood as two overlapping bell curves. So you've got lots of men and women who are just somewhere in the middle um, in terms of these traits, and then you have mm. uh, extreme tails. Um, and it's at those extreme tails that you see the biggest differences when you're talking about differences in average in average traits. Um, it's easier to explain this with a, <laughs> with, a, with, a with a whiteboard, but the point is that on something like sexuality, so there's there's a trait that psychologists call sociosexuality, um, which basically describes your your eagerness to have casual sex um, or your desire for sexual variety. This is the way that academics tend to, tend to phrase it. It's not quite the same as your sex drive. So you could be you can be high you can potentially be say high in have a high sex drive but only want to um, have sex with one monogamous partner. Um, but if you're interested in having lots of partners and jumping into bed quickly and doing all sorts of adventurous sexual things, um, that probably means you're high in sociosexuality. And there are women for whom that's true. But in general, and I don't think this should be a surprise to anyone who's like lived in the world <laughs> for more than five minutes, um, men are higher in that trait than women are, which is why you see, for instance, men watching a lot more porn than women do, um, men buying sex. Um, much, much more often than women do. I mean, it's it's very, very unusual for women to buy sex. 99% of hunters are male. Um, and it also means that men in general are more eager to have sex earlier on in a relationship, having sex on a first date, for instance. And it's very um, striking if you look at early writing um, of women who, who lived through the advent of the pill um, and were involved in the sort of social milieu of that time that was all about free love and all of this um that those women found that yes the pill brought them benefits and that they um didn't have to worry quite so much about um, an unwanted pregnancy although bearing in mind that actually it's 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 efficacy at that era was was a little bit dodgy and unreliable but it also meant that actually their bargaining power was um quite suddenly limited um, and women will talk about the fact that they they previously could argue with a um, uh, a boyfriend or a date that um, they couldn't have sex because of the risk of pregnancy. And that was a way of sort of the default answer was no, that you know we would not be having sex because of the obvious risks. Mm. But then when the pill arrived, that excuse didn't work anymore. And women were, were having to defend their own sexual boundaries in a situation where the default was yes and you see and that's a difficult thing to do <laughs> particularly because one of the other ways in which men and women differ psychologically is that women are more agreeable than men are um on average again meaning that women um have a tendency to put their own desires secondary to other people's and what you see, therefore, is a shift in the sexual culture where male preferences towards having sex earlier um, and having more partners and having less commitment all become much, much more mainstream. And we're now in a situation where for young people, including school age people, I mean, so it's been a long, it, for a long time, um, hookup culture has been pretty mainstream on say, university campuses. It's now increasingly the case at schools as well um that um this is sort of considered to be a rite of passage that you will go through and for some what, women i mean or hooking up hooking up um is, aren't, aren't younger people having less sex well i think what's going on yeah yeah this, that is an interesting paradox i think what's going on there is that you've got simultaneously young people having they are having less sex but i think that the sex 
I think what's going on is that the sex that they are having is much more likely to be casual because actually right. people who are in committed relationships, including marriages, um, have more sex than people who aren't, um, counter to all the jokes. Yeah. When I hear you articulate this, my I think of the women who I work with. I work in a majority women office uh, and my superiors are mostly women and when this topic comes up i think they regard it as being a bit of a dinosaur attitude to think that these are hardwired biological differences rather than culturally constructed ones and they would probably say that um all of the things that that you're talking about the you know desire for yes they would grant that they that if you survey people and if you look at their at their behavior in our culture the way that it has evolved and with the power dynamics that are inherent in it and the advantages that accrue to males in the sexual sphere and in the cultural sphere in ways of exhibiting their own dominance and uh asserting their own desires that needless to say men behave in traditionally masculine ways and women have been acculturated to behave in traditionally feminine ways but that doesn't tell us much about the way that things would be if we were all in a treated equally culturally and felt equally liberated in pursuing our sexual desires and that when you take the lid off i mean i even have many left-wing male friends who think this if you really took the lid off then women are just as much horn bags as men are but they don't feel culturally permitted to to do that yeah, so that's so that's the counter argument, and that's the, the kind of classic mainstream feminist view on this that this is all to do with socialization, particularly during childhood, um, and that things could be radically different if only we had different expectations of how men and women behave. Um, I think that there is clearly a, some role of socialization. You do see some variation between cultures and how men and women tend to behave. Um, my first degree was in anthropology, so I'm I'm. I write. Um, I use a lot of anthrop anthropological data in the book because because it's um it's a fabulous way of understanding one's own culture um, by looking at how other cultures differ. And clearly, there is some variation, but there's not that much variation. Like, there's no there is no culture on the anthropological record where women are more eager to have casual sex than our men. Um, and there well, are kind of biological realities that 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 never go away, um, regardless of socialization, you know, it is always going to be riskier for women to hook up with a man, um, because of the pregnancy risk, because of the violence risk. Um, th there are risks that women run that men just don't. Um, and it means that you have to, you have to really, really, <laughs> um, fancy this person and really, really want to have sex for that, for that, um, risk to be outweighed by the benefit to you and clearly there are some women for whom that's true um there are outliers in every possible direction but but you know if there is no culture in which we see across the board women being more eager to hook up than men to me it feels like if you're flipping a coin a thousand times and it comes up heads every single time it seems a lot more likely that there is some that, that the coin is weighted in some Immovable way, right? But that, that way, what we are talking about is, is 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 biology in the end, and a product of our evolutionary history, which makes perfect sense because the nature of of different reproductive roles is that women just commit a lot more and risk a lot more um, through pregnancy than do men, because you've got nine months of labour, you've got a, a dangerous childbirth, you've got many many years of of infant and childcare. Whereas right. in theory, men can all, men can reproduce every time they orgasm. Um, so w you would expect us to have different attitudes towards sexual relationships on that basis. Yes, but I, 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 sorry, sorry, can, I, can I just tease apart? Aren't there two ways that the coin can be weighted? The one way in which the coin the coin toss can be weighted is the is the evolutionary biological way, which says that there are big differences between male and female sexual drives. But then another way, which it sounds like you may be conflating with that, is that there are practical material reasons why it's more dangerous, or at least more than a man. Then the cultural uh, relativist, I suppose, can come back and say, well, yeah, that's why we need to eliminate those reasons. So if men weren't 
violent and women had total autonomy over their own reproductive systems, then you would have erased the, the weighting of the coin. And that, that those, those facts don't tell us anything about whether there's an innate biological difference in, in sexual authority. Um, I don't think that you can eliminate those differences. I mean, that's the project, right? So, so, so the idea from people who think that it is a, social, is a product of socialization is to say, okay, we, we get rid of all the ways in which women are put at a disadvantage or women are disincentivized from, from having sex like men, from hooking up. Um, I mean, we can get onto this, but I don't know who decided that that was like the ideal way of having sex. <laughs> right, that this was aspirational, but whatever. Like, if, if that's the goal, we say, okay, um, we educate men um, in ways that make them less likely to commit sexual violence. We, uh, um, I don't know, change the cultural narrative so that women aren't shamed for wanting to have those kind of sexual relationships and so on. I don't know how you eliminate the difference in physical strength unless you want to say that, I don't know, we, we, we give women firearms or something. Yeah, well, I was just going to say, in America, are they, uh, you know, yeah, the, yeah. The, only, the only... The feminist case for the Second Amendment, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, <laughs> um, that's a really hard one, though. How do you, how do you deal with that um, yeah. essential inequality? You, the contraception thing... Um, yeah, I mean, contraception gets more effective every day, so you potentially do reach the point where there really is no, no pregnancy risk. But then I think the problem that we get to is that actually we're really overestimating, or the, or, or the people who propose that project are really overestimating the extent to which we're really masters of our own, of our own bodies and our own minds. You know, we've we spent ninety five percent of our species history as hunter gatherers, and there are a lot of ways in which we haven't really our brains haven't really moved moved out of that out of that um our, our our brains and our bodies are still to some extent expecting that set of conditions um even though we we've obviously changed radically and there are all sorts of ways in which um evolution psychologists have identified that 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 history feeding into our contemporary behavior in terms of things like you know how we behave on twitter even <laughs> it's, it's influenced by revolutionary history and I think it's very clear from the research, and this grows stronger every day, that our sexual behaviour is too. And I think the problem that a lot of women are in, are encountering, and this is, I think, the problem with, with with viewing this all as, with taking the blank slate view and viewing this all as something that we could kind of rewrite culturally, is that it's increasingly normal now um, for women of of my age and younger, I'm 30, to view um, having sex like a man as aspirational and actually as compulsory. And there's a lot of effort that women put in to suppressing feelings of discomfort and distress in response to sexual encounters that they actually are not necessarily, they don't entirely want, or they don't entirely want on these kind of um, casual terms that the hookup culture expects and there's all sorts of survey data showing that women feel more um more regret more distress more more um there's there's a negative impact to their self-esteem and so on um which men are not experiencing after these encounters women are also very unlikely to orgasm in these encounters so the actual kind of um sexual benefit to them is pretty slight um and I think what's going on is that actually you, it's really, really hard to train yourself out of your instinctive responses and you, you, you can only really get so far with it. And I think moreover, you know, why, why should we try? <laughs> like why, why, is the, why is this the goal that we should be encouraging women to, to have sex like men to imitate male sexuality? When actually, I don't think there's anything wrong with typical with typical female sexuality. It's hard to know, isn't it, from the outside, the extent to which women are young women are pursuing more casual partners because there's an expectation for them to do so, and the extent to which the increase in casual sex over the past couple of generations 
is taking the lid off a pressure cooker that had been suppressed for centuries. So I'm not sure how we would arrive at a conclusion about whether or not the the women with the false consciousness who who are merely doing what society and culture expects them to do are the ones pre-sexual revolution uh, who did everything that that men required of them or the ones post-sexual revolution who, according to your theory, it sounds like are doing everything that feminists require of them. Maybe now they're just more free to pursue the good life as they see it. I don't think they're doing what feminists are asking of them. I mean, I think that fe- that some feminists are, are kind of um, uh, cheering on this culture in a way that I think is unwise. But I, I don't think it's. I don't think it's. Um, I think false consciousness is too too stark a way of putting it. Don't think it's that there's a sort of um, elaborate conspiracy. Um, I don't think that that anyone is kind of um, imposing this culture top down in any way. I think what it is is that the incentive structure has changed, um, and that the and 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 the culture has changed. And particularly when you're thinking about young people, um, we know anyone who's been a teenager. I mean, we know that the teenagers are wildly um, preoccupied with with what's normal, with what's cool, with what other people are doing. I don't think it's outrageous to suggest that young women and young men. Are, res- are are responding to the cues around them and to what other people are doing and what seems to be aspirational and making their sexual decisions on that basis, which, of course, they have always done. And it used to just be that the, the sexual culture was, was different and what was considered to be desirable was different. And instead of girls now being shamed for being frigid prudes, girls would previously have been shamed for being, for being too promiscuous. So it's just kind of flipped in that, in that way. Um, what I'm arguing though is that I think that the that the template which is now which is now dominant and which is I think falsely represented as being just as you say kind of re- relieving the pressure cooker and just allowing women to sort of finally be free and behave sexually as they would they would have always liked to is that I think that actually the current sexual culture is is encouraging women to to to, to do things that actually aren't in their interests and are so much more in the interests of the Hugh Hefners of the world. I start the book by talking about Marilyn Monroe and Hugh Hefner as this kind of perfect example of two male and female icons of the sexual revolution who, who experienced this sexual revolution in, in extremely different ways. And Hefner, you know, Hefner had a ball. I mean, I think he did, in the end, um, end up being a pretty pathetic old figure. <laughs> But he, he as, a, as an attractive high-status man, he was interested very clearly, very high in, in, in sociosexuality and very interested in having as many partners as possible and always having his kind of blonde harem around him at all times. Um, it was hugely in his interest to, to be in a, in a culture where um, any of the old restrictions were, were done away with and it was easier to persuade women into bed than ever before. But the problem is that there, there is a real, that is not the preference of the typical woman is basically the problem. And there are, even though there are some women who I think sincerely share those preferences, um, when we're talking about what, what norms should be, um, what kind of cultural template should exist, I think that we have to be thinking about what what protects the interests of that majority of women. Mm. Um, and, I, and, I, and I don't think that this kind of no-holds-bar supposed sexual liberation does that. One interesting uh, controversy that keeps seeming to arise is how we talk about women, young women, keeping themselves safe from sexual violence. Um, mm. I don't know if it's the same in the UK, but relatively frequently... Here in Australia, there'll be an apology that has to be issued by some police chief or mayor because after an incidence of sexual violence uh, or some other uh, violent individual who might be on the run, they the mayor or the police chief will say something like, you know, don't walk through the park at night alone if you're a woman or, you know, be careful uh, who you talk to or some such thing. And then everybody says, ah, you're blaming the victim. And you're saying that it's, this happened most 
memorably when the mayor of Albury, I think, yes, said that women shouldn't walk through the park at night alone and then had to come out the following day and apologize for saying that because we should be focusing on the male who was the threat rather than the women who weren't doing anything wrong. They should have every right to walk through a park at night as much as they want. And it's, it seems a rather <clears throat> esoteric response to me when you're talking about something as grave as the well-being of a young woman. It seems, it seems more esoteric and less pragmatic than you might warrant. Do you have a take on that? Yeah, I mean, I think that it's, um, it's I used to work in, um, in a rape crisis centre um, before I became a journalist. So I am very sensitive to this issue of victim blaming. I mean, I think what feminists really mean when they talk about this, this kind of victim blaming language is the worry is that if we, if we go around saying that women shouldn't be doing, sh shouldn't be doing things um, that potentially put them at risk, then when or if they are attacked, um, uh, police and juries and, and, and newspapers and so on are going to be less willing to, to take the side of the victim and to, um, to properly go after her attacker because the, the, the idea is that actually she, she's partly culpable. And, you know, obviously I feel as though the attacker is solely to blame, um, regardless of the circumstances. And that, that fear of, um, swaying juries and so on is a is a real one but i also think that there is a certain hypocrisy going on um in that we all tell our loved ones to do things like this and we all take precautions ourselves and you know ask our friends to text us when they get home and and tell our daughters and our sisters and whatever um not to do certain risky things mm. But for some reason, there's a, well, not for some reason, I know the reason, <laughs> there is a, 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 a publicly, you're not supposed to say that. And I think that that kind of deliberate, deliberate difference between public and, and private discourse, the problem I think with doing that is that there are girls, particularly, and, and, and women, but we're particularly talking about girls and really young women here, who who actually don't have anyone telling them that who don't who don't have access to that private discourse where you're told to do all the, all the all the sensible things and are actually you know young people in particular are so are so desperately need a guidance i mean i think this is one of the ways in which pro progressivism as a sort of ideology um that we that we spoke about at the top of the show the idea of everything history set on this kind of linear path one of the problems with it is that it really valorizes um, youth and assumes that new ideas are necessarily better ideas and you, that you have to have this constant process of renewal. You mm. see this even with like an example I use is um, in the book is of the Friends, the American TV show, which is, yeah. is, is all of a sudden has loads of articles, you know, listicle kind of articles about how problematic it is and how <laughs> like, how it doesn't. But the, the, the speed of rejecting old things is amazing, yeah. right? Like the, the the actors and friends aren't even middle-aged yet and they're already considered <laughs> problematic. So yeah. the, the problem with that whole view of things is it means that you're basically valorizing inexperience and making it very difficult for, for young people to to learn from older generations and the problem is that you know teenage girls really don't know <laughs> so, you know many of this basic safety stuff and they they really don't know anything about the dark side of male sexuality and you know in a way that's kind of lovely that they are so um so innocent of the of the world's horrors but it also does make them very vulnerable and i think that we do them a disservice when we are not honest um, about things like, you know, not just walking through a park at night, but things like, um, getting really, really drunk in public. That's not something that used to be considered, um, a good idea or socially acceptable. Even in the, even in the eighties and nineties, that was not, that was not a, a, a typical thing. Um, 
Whereas now, now it is. And I think that it's one of those things that we say, we might, we might privately advise our friends to, to go study or to, um, you know, look out for our friends and when they're out drunk and so on. Like we, we sort of have private, private systems of trying to mitigate the risks. Um, but they do fail. Mm. And, um, I had this conversation actually with a group of young people recently who came to a a literary festival that I was speaking at and we, 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 I spoke to them afterwards and they were saying, but shouldn't people be allowed to make their own mistakes? I say, yes. I mean, that is to some extent a part of life. You do have to just learn through experience. The problem is that there are certain mistakes that will destroy your life. Mm. And I don't know if we want to be sort of, asking young women to play Russian roulette, not actually knowing that that's what they're doing I'm, in the service of I'm not even, I'm not even yeah. sure. I'm not even sure how much they don't know that they're doing it in the sense that I'm not sure I agree that we're keeping a generation insulated from the reality of male violence. At least in Australia, there's been a real reckoning in the past five to eight years of the appalling behavior of some men in the halls of parliament house and the highest echelons of media and politics and business and if anything now i i think i mean i hesitate to i bite my tongue to say that i think it's exaggerated because i don't want to downplay the reality of the hardship but i think the the commonplace view among many of my female friends is that pretty much most men are potential rapists and you really are risking yourself being with putting yourself in any kind of a compromising situation with another human being who may be a male member of the species. It makes me wonder whether or not the, you mustn't tell a girl not to walk through the park at night when there's a rapist around. You mustn't tell a woman not to wear provocative clothing when she's going to be surrounded by a lot of drunk uh, horny young men. You mustn't tell a woman not to get blackout drunk on a university campus when she's going to be surrounded with males she doesn't know. Whether or not that messaging is actually an attempt to defy reality rather than a naivety or an ignorance of reality, it almost seems like precisely because male sexual violence is so ubiquitous, we're going to insist on creating a new reality in which we deny it its place and behave as if it weren't there, as if we can extinguish it through sheer force of will and language. I don't know if that makes any sense, but that... Yeah, it does. Fake it. The fake it till you make it. Fake it till you make it, baby. <laughs> yeah. 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 No, um, I agree. It isn't, it isn't, it isn't interesting, apparent contradiction in that you get on the one hand... Some sometimes, sometimes yeah, hyperbolic language um, about the extent of male sexual violence. I mean, I really do think that hashtag not all men is is true. <laughs> to the, I mean, it's just patently true to the extent mm. that um, the vast majority of men are not rapists or potential rapists, and there's actually lab research demonstrating this where you, you you hook men up to various or men and women you hook them up to various gadgets and they'll tell you they kind of measure sexual response and, and the majority of men when they're shown kind of violent sexual imagery are not are not aroused by it they're not interested in it they're not they're not a risk um the issue of course is that you don't know you don't know which which yeah. are dangerous and which men aren't yeah um there are some indicators but not that many um so how do you manage this? I mean, the, I think that the, I think that the fake it till you make it strategy is a, is a poor one, but it, it's rooted in the idea that we spoke about earlier, that all of this is to do with socialization and that actually what that the project needs to be a cultural one in terms of, you know, remaking people's ideas and, right. and so much emphasis on things like consent workshops in schools as a, as a solution to, um, mm. as a solution to these kind of aggressive impulses. I mean, I don't think that consent workshops are bad. Um, I, 
I've taught loads of them in my time. I think they're fine. I don't think that there's silver bullet by any means. And I think that actually the thing that they do is different from what most people think that they do. I don't think that they dissuade any anyone from being sexually violent. I think what they do is they they tell victims or potential victims um, what the law is and, and that they're allowed to kick up a fuss and they're allowed to go to the police or authorities if, if someone um, assaults them. And they also provide kind of institutional, they set the institutional line in that if a school or a university or whatever tells its students in a consent workshop that this is the law, you're not allowed to break it. If if students are found to have been doing so, then they then they can come down hard on them. So they're not useless. But also this idea that you can just re-educate um, potential aggressors, I think is naive to the point of being dangerous yeah that's interesting i hadn't really superimposed the nature versus nurture debate or seen it as an underpinning of of all of this but i think you're right that it's almost like if you can just tell all men not to rape then they'll as a cohort be less likely to do so which may be somewhat true in the sense that there can be a conversational intolerance amongst men. You can encourage men to have to be more intolerant towards misogynistic uh, points of view and sexist opinions when they hear them. But whether or not there's a direct nexus between that kind of cultural nicety and violent rapists being deterred from violently raping people is another question. Because that is such a small cohort of men, which doesn't mean that they don't commit a lot of offences. They do, and lots of women's lives are deranged by it. But, you know, the vast majority of men have never considered doing it and will never do it. So the extent to which you can kind of shoehorn the, the bad people out of the equation simply by requiring all the, the rest of the males to shoulder more responsibility for the minority in their midst that we're usually not even aware of yeah, I think you do need to believe that it's all stemming from a cultural conversation rather than the biology of human depravity uh, in order to get there. I mean, while we're on this, I'll let, I want to let you go soon and it's getting late here, but while we're on the nature versus nurture thing, once outside of the sexual realm, in terms of interests, you talked about agreeability and stuff, but I, I don't want to let you go without touching on the pay disparity, why there are so many politicians and CEOs who are still men, the, the Google memo that people might remember, which one Google engineer wrote about there being engineer, you know, differences in interests in engineering and things like why are, why are boys and men interested in boyish menish things and, 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 and girls not. And does that explain any of the things that my feminist colleagues would say are all down to power structures and sexism yeah it's those bell curves again um to some extent so so a uh, uh a non-comprehensive list of ways in which men and women do seem to differ on average um agreeableness is one women tend to be more um sort of nice to put it colloquially um neuroticism women tend to be more anxious and depressive than men um, risk taking men are more risk tolerant than women are. Um, that's partly linked to age as well. So young men are, are more risk tolerant, which means things like, you know, they want to be Formula One racers and 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 have, you know, go to war and all these physically risky things. But it also means things like being um, risk taking as an entrepreneur or whatever, which is mm. is has plays into the professional realm, right? Um, the sexual gap we've talked about, um, this thing, this, this interest in people versus interested in things, um, phenomenon. Again, you know, Can you explain that it's funny how a lot of very clever people, um, really struggle to wrap their heads around the idea of overlapping bell curves <laughs> and the fact that if yeah. you're saying that men tend to be this, blah, 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 you're really not saying this is an absolute thing by any means. And, and people tend to say, oh, but I know this person who isn't like that at all, which, to which you say, mm. yeah, of course, fine. That, that's completely compatible within the model. It's just that 
at the population level. I mean, what, what James Damore was talking about in the Google memo is the, the tippy, tippy, tippy tip of the most highly skilled, you know, people who are obsessed with things, i.e. Google engineers. Um, and given the fact that you do see this, this skew, you would expect that extreme tail to mostly have men in it which is not to say that there won't sometimes be some women, but it, the fact that there's any kind of disproportionality doesn't, doesn't, isn't evidence in and of itself of there being any kind of discrimination in hiring practices. I mean, the other thing that you, that you've also got to remember is that the, the, the gender pay gap is really a motherhood pay gap because actually women are slightly out earning men in their twenties now. And actually, a lot of the traits that we've talked about, like agreeableness and uh, conscientiousness is another one. Women tend to be slightly more conscientious than men on average. Those are actually traits that are very well suited to the modern labor market. Um, if you're working in a knowledge economy or service economy mm. kind of role, being agreeable and conscientious is very helpful. And we increasingly live in a world where, where male physical strength or physical strength in general, which of course is possessed mostly by men, has so much less economic importance. There just aren't many jobs like that still existing. So what used to be of profound, you know, think of all the men kind of extracting coal from the ground to keep society running. Um, increasingly those jobs are a melting away and it means that, that, that male physical strength doesn't have the importance that it used to, which is why you see women um, increasingly dominating in certain jobs until they have children and then they're, and then their earnings fall off a cliff. Um, and uh, that's really the source of, the, of right. the gender pay gap overall, particularly when children are little. So, so go ahead. Well, I was just going to say, so Louise, my, I have five-year-old twins, a boy and a girl. When they are our age, entering middle age, do you think that the world will be more, do you think that gender roles will be more or less defined and will there be less, more or less difference between the sexual behavior of men and women? That's such an interesting question. I think that the, I think that our economy now encourages, at least in the world of work, a sort of, gender neutrality um in that actually what a what what is best for profit and for gdp is is basically just treating men and women as kind of <laughs> undifferentiated worker widgets wow. um it's obviously hugely hugely the, the 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 world of work that we inhabit now is so profoundly opposed to family formation <laughs> Um, particularly for women, because just the biological reality is that you've got to take more time out if you um, if you're pregnant and afterwards, and and um, and women do tend to have more of a kind of biological tug towards being with their children than men do, which means that women are more likely to want to step out of the workforce. So, um, but but what's happening on that front is that is that people are just having a lot less children, and this is this is obviously the big the big story of this century is birth rates. Yes. Um, falling off a cliff and the fact that we're very soon going to be going into population decline because, I mean, there are a whole bunch of reasons for that, but one of them is to do with the fact that our working lives are just really incompatible with with family formation. So, yeah, so in 30 years' time, 40 years' time, where are, what experience are our children going to have? I don't know. I mean, I think that, I think that that kind of gender difference does have a way of popping its head up in unexpected places i think even if you suppress it in one area of life i think people tend to be drawn towards that kind of polarity in other areas of life um the example i give in the book is of um bdsm which has become super super mainstream in recent years and and partly that's to do with the porn industry but I think it's also partly to do with the fact that I think when we are living more kind of gender neutral lives, people for some reason seem to be drawn towards almost play acting at extreme versions of masculinity and femininity. Mm. Um, I think that's what I think that's a 
a, a massive reason why BDSM has become as popular as it has, which does suggest that there is something to do with, it does suggest that this is irrepressible <laughs> in some way. It's just all about how it's expressed. You're making me wonder or not whether, whether there's something to do with the rise of the alt-right and the far right there as well in terms of this traditional obsession with traditional masculine tropes. Um, I mean, there's a whole, probably a whole political conversation for another day about the, the expression of gender in, uh, sort of meta politics. Uh, there, I, I definitely see, a, see some sort of a craving across the, across certain cohorts of, of male populations for less effete compromise and more traditionally masculine certainty in affairs. Maybe that's an econ maybe you'll come back with a materialist uh, explanation of that and an economic one, but uh, yeah, it could be cultural too. Louise, thank you for your time. It's, we, I feel like we've only scratched the surface, but it's, uh, it's, <laughs> it's great to hear your point of view. And next time you write a book, we can have a four hour conversation instead. <laughs> I look forward to it. Thank you so much. Uncomfortable Conversations is produced by Stefan Postuma. Follow me, Josh Sepps, on Twitter and Instagram for all the latest. May your day be fruitful, your mind humble, your enemies generous, and your conversations perfectly, sparklingly, delectably uncomfortable.